You're listening to Stealing the Blinds, a weekly poker podcast by students of the game for students of the game. Join Dell and guests in conversations about poker theory and bridging the gap between theory and application. We're all in this together. This week's topic, poker guru Tommy Angelo. Hello, everybody. Those of you who are just listening, our guest is somebody that I'm really excited to have here. I've got my full uh, fanboy suit on here. He's written one book that I consider a must-read for anybody before they even play poker, and that's Elements of Poker. So Tommy Angelo is joining us today. Thanks, Tommy. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for having me on. When we were talking about this and we were setting up the notes for this show, you wanted to talk about the painless poker first. That's because that's what you're doing now. You said you're you're trying to decrease people's pain and increase their happiness. And that's great because I like to think that we're trying to do that too here through our show and through our interactions with the people that we talk to. What exactly, other than the book, what exactly are you doing right now to do that, to decrease people's pain? Yeah, just to clarify, there's a book called Painless Poker, but then pain, you know, moving toward less pain in poker is sort of what I've been doing personally, you know, my whole life. You know, it's it's kind of a funny phrase because if you think about it, pretty much everything we do is based around reducing unhappiness. Like if we're hungry, we eat. If we have a Jones to play poker, we go play poker. If we need money to be happy, we go make money. So it's like everything we're doing is constantly, whether we realize it or not, we're taking action to try to reduce some kind of unhappiness. And so what I realized a long time ago when I was grinding full time in the 90s was that the pain of tilt and the frustration of playing bad and all the many different types of pain there are of poker, that was the obstacle between me and making a living playing poker. This is back in the 90s, right? Nobody knew how to play anything and it was all limit hold'em. And so the player pools were so soft that to make a living, it was really about consistency. That was it. And Limit Hold'em is a game that is like if you were going to design a game to tilt you, that's the game, right? Because there's all these runouts and all these showdowns and you're just getting tilted, tilted, tilted all the time. And I realized early on that, one, I was living a miserable life because all the randomness of poker was keeping me unhappy pretty much all the time. And then, two, I realized that that unhappiness was leading to bad playing. And so very, very early on, I started attacking the unhappiness in poker. Okay. So then fast forward to 2003. And that's when I had like a whole life turnaround. I basically hit a form of bottom in terms of addictions and all sorts of other things. And so that's when I turned it all around. I quit drinking and I started meditating every day. Now I had moved to California about five years earlier. And so that's how, where I learned about meditation, learned about yoga. I became convinced that this was a really good idea before I started doing it. Then when I started doing it, after about a week, I realized, okay, this is the path toward painlessness. You know, the more I was reading about Buddhism and all that, it's like, you know, what they say in the story of Buddha is that he attained his enlightenment in his mid-30s, and then he taught for another 45 years. And when they would ask him, summarize what you teach, he would say, I teach suffering. I teach the cause of suffering and the end of suffering. That's it, right? And I was like, wow. I suffer a lot at poker. If I could undo that suffering at poker, 
one, I would enjoy it more, and two, I would make more money. So that's how I got on the whole reduce my unhappiness as sort of a way of life, okay? And um, in terms of how to do that, well, that, you know, gets a little complicated. I'll send it back to you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the thing is, like, I've kind of created this podcast mostly so I can con people like yourself into giving me free coaching. <laughs> so, oh, well, I, have, um, I have no problem with that. <laughs> you know, so I, I mean, because like I experience a lot of pain in poker. I think all of us do, mm-hmm. um, like you said. But like I can tell you that mine comes from, you know, a broken bankroll, which I mentioned to you earlier today. Mm-hmm. Mine also comes from that sense of why I, I deserve this. You know, it's one of those weird things. Like I watch my friends do really well. And it's not one of those things where I don't want them to do well. I want them to do well. I'm, I'm a cheerleader. Do well. Do great. I want you to do great. Right. But there's always this voice in my head that creates this pain. I know it's creating pain every time I have it that says, why not me? <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. What, what, yeah, why not me? Why not me? You know, I deserve it. I'm working hard. Right. And I think that wherever that root cause of the pain is, if you can get to that, you can tell me if I'm right or wrong. But if you can delve into that. Sure. And, and rewire yourself yeah, to maybe change, rephrase the thinking to like, hey, it's not about why not me. It's about be prepared for when it is you. <laughs> you know, and it could be a lot less pain. It's very easy to understand the cause of pain, theoretically. But that doesn't do any good toward getting rid of it. That's, so that's the good news, bad news. And like one of my favorite analogies is like guitar. Okay. You could, if you don't play guitar... You could go read about guitar. You could watch guitar players. You could read about the fingering, learn about the dynamics. And none of it means anything until you actually do it. The only way to learn it is to do it, period, right? So if one wants to get on a path of pain reduction, the only way I know how to do it is through some sort of meditative practice. If you want to get to the root causes, you know, there's Band-Aids and Cures. Right. So let's say somebody has suffers because uh, they have a cocaine addict, uh, addiction and it causes great suffering and they try to end it with sheer willpower alone. Well, that's not sustainable. That's been scientifically proven. OK, if somebody wants to undo the addiction at the cause level, that takes years of training. That's the bad news part. But here's basically what the causes of unhappiness are as is taught by Buddha and many, many other wisdom teachers. And it has to do with impermanence, which is one of the key, key words. Everything is changing all the time. Absolutely, everything is changing all the time. And anything that has a beginning has an end. Okay, so here's our two sources of unhappiness. One is when we want things to be different than they actually are, right? You wish your bankroll were different than it actually is. Anytime we wish things are different than they are, that causes pain. The other one is when we want things to remain as they are. Oh, I met this in Hawaii. I'm looking at this beautiful sunset. I wish it could last forever. Or, oh man, I remember when I was in high school and I was a wrestler and I weighed 160 pounds, but now I weigh 200 pounds. Oh, I wish I could have stayed the same. So anytime we want things to be different than they are, or we want things to remain as they are, those are the two common causes of unhappiness. So if you take those sentences and apply them to your mindset at poker, it will always be one of those two things. 
But what I meant by it's theoretically easy to understand that, and there are other many other ways to approach the theoretical concept of pain and unhappiness. Changing it is super, super, super hard because what you're up against is program conditioning in our brains, in our individual brains and our collective consciousness as humans. Most of us, or pretty much everybody, has this general sense of unease and discomfort and dissatisfaction that rules our lives. It's there like all the time. One of the ways I, I call it like the fault-finding mind. We're always looking for what's wrong, what's wrong, what's wrong. Now that has served us very well evolutionarily over the years in terms of how to survive in the wild. But now in the modern world, it just, make, it just causes depression and all kinds of other problems. So th to change it, to change this ingrained thinking that we have, the only way I know to go about doing it is to, is to calm yourself over and over and over. So just there in that one breath, I went from somebody who was babbling mindlessly to being somebody who all the way down to my feet is stillness. Okay. Now, I can do that at the poker table between every single hand. That's why I can't tilt. It's like impossible because I've been training to do this for 20 years at the table. I started in 2003. So I've trained myself over all this time to be able to lose the two outer, witness a little spike of unhappiness, and just melt it away. Now, I'm very, very advanced in this area, okay? Somebody who's been meditating for, say, six months isn't going to be able to do it like that every time, but they're going to be able to do it 5% better or 10% better than they used to. They'll be sitting at a stoplight. And last year, they used to be super frustrated and bored. And now they have this skill. Oh, I can just calm myself and relax right now. That's the practice of suffering reduction at the base level, is training yourself, using the practice of meditation to use your breathing and your posture and awareness of your thoughts to calm yourself and bring yourself back to the moment and realize, oh, that's just my brain spinning out. So anytime you can isolate a specific one like you have, the one of like, I deserve this, okay? So through the training, what you would do is you would train yourself to witness when your mind has latched onto that thought, which it's done a million times. And now and then, using breathing and awareness, raise your level of consciousness to where you're looking down now on your own thinking. And you're like, oh, well, that's just that same damaging thought that I've had a zillion times. At that split second, it won't be causing you pain anymore. At that split second, you will no longer be thinking, oh, I'm unlucky. I deserve better. You'll be thinking, huh, I was thinking an unhappy thought, and now I'm not. Wow, this shit works. <laughs> yeah, I will say this. like it's I've done meditation at the table, but I'm not nearly as advanced as you. I say I've done it at the table. I have that moment. I got to get up. I got to go for a walk. Good. And I got to get away from the table and do a little meditation. And then I can go back and not be tilted back to the whole deserve this intellectually. Intellectually, I can tell myself a million times that I know that poker owes me nothing. <laughs> you know, doesn't matter how much I study, no matter how many books I read, yep. poker does not owe me anything. No. And it's a game of variance. I can tell myself that over and over again intellectually, but you're right. It doesn't get to the soul. Yeah, until something something deeper has to. So, what what's your uh, your your pain structure, Jordan? We talk often about 
poker and life being related in that being good at one makes you better at the other. And that works in, in both ways. And I feel like the preparation that I did for training in the military has served me well at the table because you don't get a chance to, to step away like you might in other right. real world scenarios when you're, when you're on a mission or I conducting an operation. And uh, I really, I didn't realize it at first because the poker table is such a static environment. And uh, I, I read a book, uh, Solve for Happy, which it really spoke to my analytical mind. It's a, a Google X like VP and he lost his son and he, he went through the same kind of journey. And in, in writing the book, he basically breaks down the formula for happiness is, or the formula for unhappiness is the difference between expectation and reality, essentially. It's like happiness equals expectation divided by reality or something cool that he put in a formula because you can write that down yeah. and look at it, whatever. But the, but the whole right. point is the bigger the gap is between your expectation and what reality is just causes an, an emotional gap. And whether it is that your expectation is that something is going to suck and the reality is that this thing is awesome, you typically have trouble even recognizing how awesome the thing is because you're looking for the negatives. So in the more practical right. sense, when you expect something to be good and it's bad, is the, the bigger that gap is, is cause for some serious unhappiness. Yeah. And so losing a son obviously right. is a huge gap in, in expectation versus reality. Uh, in the military, when you're conducting an operation and you you plan for things to change, you know, it's been said plenty of times, like you, no matter how good the plan is, right. right, once the stuff hits the fan, like it's out the window. But when something happens that you don't expect, you don't get to just like get up from the table and walk away. We have these groups or while I was in the in the military, they started these groups and, and it was for mental resilience. And uh, it, it was it was for all sorts of resiliency issues that that one might have. And I mean. The military is for a cause of a lot of grief, right? Um, it's because you might lose lose friends overseas or something like that. So, uh, we we did a lot of coaching on on resilience, and we did practice some of those techniques. You know, you would just take a, a, a deep breath sometimes. But I've I found it's kind of funny. Um, I found that I'm pretty loud when I do it. So often, oftentimes, yeah. I will like clench my fist, and the feeling of like my nail in my palm kind of brings me back to like. I, I know this is in a moment where it's just my expectation not meet or reality not meeting my expectation. But sometimes I will sigh so loud that I've, I've gotten the comment before at a home game I used to play where uh, we got to the river. I guess I must have like had aces or something and thought I was winning and like put in a big river bet and got called. And then I, I showed aces in person at two pair. That was like a weird two pair that they shouldn't have had, like an unsuited two gap or something. Right. And I just let out this big sigh and someone was like, Oh, there he goes. Like Jordan's mad at the fish. And I was like, well, you know, I mean, it's an upsetting situation, but I, I have been called yeah, yeah. out at, before at a, at stoplights. Uh, you know, when I'm in traffic, I absolutely despise traffic. I hate it. Every time, every time I come oh. around the corner on the highway and the cars are backed up, I let out this audible sigh and the, you know, girlfriends at the time have been like, what are you so mad about? But, but it's for sure my way of just recognizing like, hey, this, yeah. this is something that I can't fix right now. And immediately in like the traffic situation, what I'm mad about is not checking Google Maps before I get in the car. But it's <laughs> like, I, I know where I'm going. I'm getting on the same highway I drive every day. It's just not my fault. I would right. never have been able to guess that someone got in a car accident, you know, in, in the same so, route I take every day. Well, the frustrating there thing is, and it's the same with poker, and I have the same issue with traffic is, it isn't the traffic; it's the fact that you played bad. <laughs> yeah, right. It's you played bad. You played 
the traffic gain poorly by not right? checking your app, right? So you're still kicking yourself for a mistake, just like we do in poker. Yeah, abs- absolutely. You know, you were unlucky that the traffic was there. So, but this sigh that you do, that's an unconscious reaction that your body is and mind is doing to alleviate the pain a little bit. That's not the same as mindful breathing 10 times. Oh after yeah, not at all. It's a, it's a, it's like a mechanism to, to relieve tension, but it's, it's, yeah, it's not at all a breathing exercise after the fact. I do have, right. I have a lot right. of experience in, uh, in like martial arts and meditation through that, through that route. And I, yeah. I went to Korea one time, they had to sit in a gym for like two hours and meditate. And I wow. had trouble. I had trouble with it sitting still for that long. Yeah. Well, that would be super hard. Yeah. I've never heard one positive story from somebody who is not already a trained meditator who goes to like a retreat. I mean, that would be like, you know, going into do going to boot camp without athletic training. You're just like, holy cow, this is for like monks. You know, I have a, I have a book. It's my only non-poker book called Dailiness. And the subtitle is How to Sustain a Meditation Practice. It's a short little book. If, if and when either of you is actually interested in starting a practice, and I'm not saying this just because I wrote this book, but I wrote it for you. I'll just say that. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's written, it's not a poker book, but it has the poker mindset. It's all logic. It's all real. There's no fluffy, you know, and it, I really think it's a great place to start for somebody who wants to get it going. Yeah, I cannot wait have my ego tell my wife that Tommy Angelo wrote a book for me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know that's not what you meant, but that's what my ego. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> you know, what I get out of that story is, is I get like reframing. I can just imagine that Jordan, the next time he's in traffic, is going to reframe the whole thing. Instead of being upset about the traffic, he's going to look at it. Hey, I got time to meditate. That's exactly how it should be. Ultimately, is it's an opportunity. There are a lot of things you can do that that are just concentration exercises that are fantastic, that help you come back to the present later when you want to. But for example, let's say you're at a light, you're at a big LA, or where are you guys? You're in Michigan. So you're at a big intersection where the lights take forever, and you get there just as it changes, right? So you know you're going to be sitting there for three minutes. Now, what are you going to do with these three minutes? You can just sit there and do whatever you used to do the rest of your life, or you can put some of that time to good use. Here's a crazy, simple thing you can do. Stare at the red light as long as you can without moving your eyes. And this is a meditative practice. This is training. Anytime you force yourself to focus on one thing in a situation that's unusual to do that, it's a great exercise. So you have like three benefits if you were to do this. Let's say for one out of those three minutes. One is... You are literally building concentration power. People think like doing puzzles is not brain strengthening, is not mind strengthening. That's just mind thinking. To strengthen your mind, you need to focus on something in the moment right now that is not thinking. So you focus on that red light, okay? So you're training. That's benefit number one. Benefit number two is during that period, you're not sitting there steaming over being stuck in traffic. That's a huge, huge benefit. It's like a relief. It's like somebody just gave you a drug for 30 seconds that made the pain go away. And then as soon as you stop, the pain comes right back. But for those 30 seconds, you were free. 
And number three is, and this you won't appreciate till you get into it, you will know that you are doing a wonderful thing for yourself by doing this training. And that in itself brings joy. It's just like when somebody, anytime you're doing something that's healthy for yourself physically, we feel good about that, right? Well, here you're doing something very healthy for yourself mentally, and you won't understand the benefits of it until you start doing it. it sounds like a crazy thing to stare at a stoplight, but it has huge benefits. It really does. So there, you can do that in traffic. I have a question then for you. Just uh, maybe correct me if I'm wrong. At a basic level, what I've been told is, like you were saying, I've when I first maybe tried to get into meditation, I was told you concentrate on an object. So my, my first thought was to think of a coffee mug. And what I was told is you think of the object, you try and concentrate specifically on the object, and that's it. And then as a new thought enters your, your mind, you accept it, you process the thought, and then you get back to the, the mug. And then over time, you do that over and over until you can get to the point where no errant thoughts enter your mind, and you can actually concentrate on the one thing for a much longer period of time. Then I was right. told the, the more advanced version is instead of choosing an object, you choose yourself. And thinking about yourself is contemplating essentially getting down to what people try and do and like what maybe monks try to do when they meditate is to get to what is the meaning of life. And you, you start with, you know, what is the meaning of myself being here? And then the next level of that I was told is you step even further and you imagine viewing yourself looking at yourself. Mm-hmm. I was told this actually by someone who's a, who was a poker friend who is very heavy into meditation. The analogy that we came up with was sitting in a hand that you're not, you're not playing the hand. You should be viewing the hand as a third party and watching yourself yeah. play the hand so you can essentially coach yourself at the table. So the hand is not something that's happening to you. You are just someone that's there navigating an event that's happening you know, at the table. Well, there's a lot of good stuff there. And what you said, I would suggest that the couple things, the object of focus in meditation, okay, that thing about the stoplight, we're defining terms here a little bit, but that that is strictly a concentration exercise. You're just literally training at concentrating, okay? The meditative practice, as it's taught in the Buddhist version, is you focus on one of three things, the in and out of your breathing, So a mindful breath is defined as anytime you are aware of whether or not you are breathing in or out. So far in this conversation, nobody's had a mindful breath. I did have a couple in there. I snuck one in, right? Breathing in, I'm aware I'm breathing in. Breathing out, I'm aware I'm breathing out. So that's one area of focus is your breathing. Number two is your posture. You want your spine to be straight. And you can do this whether you're lying down, sitting, standing, or walking. And we're always doing one of those four things. We don't count running, okay? So you're always either lying down, sitting, standing, or walking. So you practice mindful posture and mindful breathing doing each of those things. Like one of my, I have many practices I do in my morning practice, but one of them is I just walk very slowly back and forth in this room like this for about two minutes with my spine straight, following my breathing, practicing mindful walking. That way when I'm out playing poker, and I'm stuck, and I'm going out to my car to have a couple carrots, I can do mindful walking on the way to the car. Number three is, and this goes back to what you said about witnessing yourself, but specifically what you want to witness is the thinking itself. Okay, I'm aware that I'm feeling good. I'm aware that I'm feeling bad. I'm aware that I'm bored. I'm aware that I'm at peace. 
whatever. Okay. So th that's very much in line with what your friend was saying. I would say, I would suggest that definitely at this point, stop short of trying to solve the meaning of life. Okay. It is very, very important to be introspective and examining your own thoughts and stuff like this. But to whatever extent it can be goalless, you know, like the goal is to be goalless, which is kind of a weird thing in itself. That's part of it too. You know, if and when you guys actually do the stillness practice, because that, that's, see, here's the thing. If you look at through all the major religions, you know, Buddhism is atheism. There's no gods or anything. It's like purely atheistic. That makes it completely different than all the other religions. There's no handed down morality. There's no origin story of where we came from. None. When anybody would ask questions of Buddha, as the story is told, when they would ask him questions about that, his answer was always the same. He wouldn't even reply. If they asked him a question about any of that stuff, about the origin of where we came from and all that, he just didn't reply. That was his way of saying that isn't even a valid question. But the introspective stuff will come naturally. It just comes naturally when you're sitting there quietly by yourself. Oh, what I started to say there is, the thing that all these have in common, Judaism, Catholic, Catholicism, Muslim, is when they pray, they are still. You don't move. Stillness is one of the essential elements of meditation. We almost never come to a complete stop on purpose while we're awake. Almost never. And that in itself, if you did nothing else but just stop moving, it's hard takes effort. See, that's what makes it so powerful is that it always takes effort to be mindful. Always. That was the other thing I wanted to correct a little bit about what you were saying about the goallessness. You're saying like, okay, you witness your thinking, you keep going back and forth, back and forth until you don't have the thinking anymore. Well, no, that's not going to happen. That, that's not the goal is to be not thinking. The goal is to just be aware of whatever the heck is going on. Maybe we should move on to another topic. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to kind of nudge us onto another topic, but I kind of felt bad about it because this is like so wonderful. This is like, this is so, this, this conversation is so rich. I do want to talk to you about, as I said earlier, I think elements of poker should be required reading for everybody. When I look at it, it's got stuff that covers ethics in poker, etiquette in poker, strategy in poker, and all of them are still relevant. I believe the book came out in 2007. Yeah. The thing is that the evolution of poker since 2007 has been amazing. Right. It's not the same game anymore. Right. And yet the strategy in there still applies. The etiquette certainly applies, and I wish more people would follow it. The little bits of parts on, in ethics on there really apply. So did you expect that book to still be so relevant? Well, I will say that I gave it every chance I could to remain relevant. So when I was writing it, it started out twice as long as it ended up, no surprise. But I basically was throwing out anything that could go out of date. So I'll give you an example of something that's in there that, is, that when I wrote it, I knew it was timeless. And then what I do is, as a writer, which I consider myself to be a writer, and I've studied it my whole life, and I have good editors, and I'm constantly working on it, is I would just keep revising it and changing it and getting other opinions until I would get some of these concepts down to one sentence that was kind of had some shine to it, right? And so that's what makes a sentence more likely to be reproduced and shared is not just because the concept is good, but that the wording is really clear. Okay, so I'll give you an example. 
Acting last is like taking a drink of water. We don't have to know why it's good for us to know that it is good for us. And the benefits are independent of our understanding of it. So if you're acting last, if you're on the button in a hand and you're a bad player, you still have the benefit of acting last. It still is better than acting first, right? So what I wanted to do was really emphasize that acting last is really what it's all about, that that's a huge, huge part of winning poker, independent of whether you know it, independent of whether you understand why. Just do it and and you'll be better off. Anyway, when I did write that book, I had no idea how successful it would be because it was a self-published book and it was my first book. But I, in answer to your question, I absolutely did write it to give it the possibility that it would still be relevant 15 years later. So what I really appreciate about the work that you've done is, as you just mentioned, you dive really deep to get the, the true meaning of each concept before you try and explain it. Another thing that I really appreciate is a, a great analogy and a, a great a- application of um, properties to to transition from one discipline to another. And something else that, that people are able to access on your site is the Eightfold Path to Poker Enlightenment. And I, I think that's a really great way of, of translating you know, one discipline to another because the, the Eightfold Path comes from Buddhism and you apply it to poker. I specifically right. wanted to ask about now, this Eightfold Path to Poker Enlightenment is a video series, and episode four is about reciprocality. And I remember right. in my poker journey reading um, an essay that you wrote about the term reciprocality in poker, and I remember it being a very defining point for me, kind of trying to understand this concept. And I, I think it's noteworthy that you considered it so important that it has its own episode in the Eightfold Path. Would you be able to speak right. on that? The idea is that to generate profit at poker, you need to do something different than the other people are doing. So that, that's easy to assume, right? The example I like to use it that's from the book is at Lemon Hold'em, if you take a hand like uh, Pocket Aces, okay, at Lemon Hold'em, everybody's going to raise with that or re-raise with it or cap before the flop. So because everybody plays it the same way, nobody's actually making money there from a reciprocality standpoint. You're not doing anything different than anybody else. So let's say that raising before the flop has an expectation of $2 plus. Well, everybody's getting that same $2 plus, whatever, however you want to rate it. Now I'll take a hand like queen 10, offsuit, in the big blind, okay? Type player opens under the gun. We're playing limit hold'em now. It's folded all the way, I'm, just to keep it simple, folded all the, way, all the way around to the big blind. And it's a really tight player under the gun, very narrow range, okay? A bad player is going to call there 100% of the time. The grinder pro is going to fold 100% of the time. Now, this is a big difference, the difference between seeing the flop and not seeing a flop. So this is a case where a lot of money is changing hands to the professional by way of not calling. He's doing something consistently different than, than other people. It's pretty easy to understand that concept when it comes to the betting strategy. The thing I got excited about the concept is it applies everywhere else. It applies to quitting. It applies to information, talking at the table. If you don't give up information and other people are giving up information, yeah, you can say, well, obviously that's profitable, but it's profitable because you are doing something different than them that is profitable. 
the best of them all is tilt reciprocal. You get your set cracked. Then you get pocket aces and you get that cracked. Everybody goes through this, right? Everybody on earth goes through this. If you don't tilt in that moment, let's say that, that you tilt like on a scale of one to 10, you, you tilt three units worth on average when you get two bad beats in a row. But the other people at the table tilt seven units worth on average. You are literally making money every single time you sit down and not tilt in situations where other people do tilt, okay? Quitting. Let's say that you're the type of person who, when you get stuck three buy-ins, you are bolted to that chair all night. Nobody can get you out of there because you got to get even. And, and your V-pip goes up by eight points. And now all of a sudden you're a fish. But what if you're the type of person who, when you lose that third buy-in, you go running for the door? So this is quitting reciprocality. You are making money by, against the player pool by being a better quitter, by being, a better, be, by being better at them at information flow stuff. Did that clarify it? Yes. I've used the term talking to some students sometimes that when you find yourself either in a situation where the majority of time these tough conversations come up because players lose a hand, right? People don't often want to analyze spots where they made money and consider maybe right, they could have right. made more. But what I've applied it to is a spot where you get to a showdown and you understand that you would have played that hand differently if roles were reversed. Whether the oh, whether yeah, your yeah. opponent would have played your yeah. same hand were like if they didn't yeah. bet for max value. And normally the way that right. it comes up is when you lose a pot and you see your opponent's hand and you realize they should have gone for even more money. And if I had right. that, if I had rivered that unseen gut shot, then I would have made a lot more. Uh, but I, I also have yeah. used it in the sense to say that if you play a hand well and you win some and you and you analyze from the from the flip side, uh, maybe your opponent would never have even played that hand. So right. even even maybe you think, well, could I have made any more money? Well, it's fine because you're still making more money than what your opponent would have done in that spot anyway, because right. they're never exactly. check raising your I'm I'm so glad you brought that up because that that was the seed of it all right there. That and that's in Elements of Poker was that I would that's how I would analyze hands. And this came from playing bridge, where it was very, very common to to replay all the hands with everybody and see what who would have done what differently, right? But but the example is great. It's like if I have aces and you have kings, and on average I'm gonna win X amount, but if it's reversed, I'm gonna fold sometimes and get off of off of the hand. I would literally take the hands, reverse them, and then play it out in my mind, imagine it, and see if I would have ended up better. So yeah, that is, that's the crux of reciprocality at the strategy level. I think coming from a, a pre-solver world, to, to create that idea is, I mean, legendary in my mind, just to even consider thinking about the game from that aspect without having a computer like show you tons of, of charts and prints out about, about the difference between the two strategies. Other than my inability to pronounce reciprocality correctly, did I get that time? Nailed. There we Here's go. How... Other than yeah. my, other than my struggle with that, I, I think I have a good grasp of the the concept because one of the things that always simplified it for me is people will, in my opinion, people will mistakenly call poker a zero sum game, and it's not. It's a it's a negative sum game because we're right. paying rake. Now, I mean, if you're in a game where there's no rake, then it's zero sum, but. So what it means to me is it's not even just a matter of you can't make money without doing something different. If you don't do something different, you're losing money. Right. Because everybody at the table's losing money if they're playing the same. Exactly. So you have to play differently. But it's not just play differently. You have to play differently in a in the correct manner. So, yeah, it, it's one of those things that the whole thought, I, I didn't think of it when I read the book. I don't 
you know, I don't think I ever had the thought reading when you were defining how you went through the process of learning to quit better than everybody. I don't, I don't think I thought of it as reciprocality. Uh, <laughs> reciprocality. I don't think I thought of it. But when you say that, it's like, yeah, absolutely. That's what it is. Because that's one of the things that one of the things that I latched on is I'm going to quit better than you. <laughs> you know, if so I would lose the whole buy in and I'd just say, OK, it's time to go home. Yeah. Nice. There's a couple of things. So the way you can remember how to pronounce it is based on the word reciprocal. The first name I came up with for it was reciprocalness. Ooh. <laughs> I was like, nah, I think I'm I can glad do you revisited that, that one. So, yeah. And then the other thing I just wanted to point out about what you said about the rake, I have an article called about the rake called zero sum, comma, minus sum. To your point, exactly. It's not a zero sum game in a casino. I'm going to ask this question, but I think it's a silly question to ask because I think I already know the answer. Do you feel like poker made you better at life? And, and when you got better at life, do you think that made you better at poker? Is there a connection there between the two? If you go to my homepage, TommyAngelo.com, there's a banner at the top that says, when we get better at poker, we get better at life. So that has become my main thing right now. I mean, not right now. I mean, over the last 20 years, once I started meditating, I realized, wow, okay, I can train for life at the poker table and I can train for poker while I'm waiting for stoplights. And so absolutely, I, th I think for anyone who gets serious about poker, working on their game in terms of discipline and you know mastering their demons, obviously that's going to make you better at life. What I think is a good idea is to do all that on purpose and see it that way. And think of like, if somebody asks you, why don't you play poker? Well, I like the action. I like the camaraderie. I might even be good enough to make some money at this now or in the future. And I'm training to be a more patient, peaceful person. I know when I was talking with my wife, I shared that episode with you. When I was talking with my wife, I told her that even if I couldn't make money at poker, I would probably still play it because of how much I think it makes me a better person. I've learned greater empathy for people through poker. I've learned greater discipline. I've learned greater decision making. I've really just improved a lot. And I, when BJ Marshall and I started this podcast, that was part of it, is that we wanted to share our belief that getting better at poker will make you better at life. Getting better at life will make you better right. at poker. That the, the two were connected. Right. So it wasn't just, I mean, there was a lot of reasons, you know, but that was one of the big ones. So it's neat. I didn't know that was the banner on your site. I need to uh, visit it. Yeah. That's great <laughs> because that's kind of what we say here a lot. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the great benefits. I mean, people know this for a long time. It's a... So when you guys are playing, do you ever, like, let's say somebody, you see somebody suffering, you know, they've lost some pots. Do you ever like send warm vibes to them or like if somebody beats you a pot do you ever are you ever like happy for them i think that greatly depends on who the opponent is because if if i'm going to admit something if i am not a big fan of the player then i really don't care but i have for sure had conversations with people that i recognize are going through a tough spot um maybe it's at more often in in vegas or or bigger cities if i happen to go there because I, I don't often see like a new face in my in my local casinos. I don't ever see right. the, you know what? I actually am going to, I'm going to retract that because there is a player and from Lansing. And I, when I first moved to Michigan, I, I came to Lansing and I was playing in some charity games there. And then I moved to Detroit 
And uh, maybe six months after moving to Detroit, this younger, I want to say kid, but he's probably 23, 24, uh, came up to me and, you know, he, he started a conversation. I couldn't recognize him. His hair was totally different. He had put on some weight. I think he was going to the gym, but he, you know, he told me who he was. And we had talked about some of the outbursts that he had at the charity. He would, he would lose a pot and get really mad. You know, he, he would do 24 year old things. So I, you know, I had a couple of conversations right. uh, with him and uh, that, that is a person that I've, I've mentioned, you know, even though we're at the same table, he, you know, he changed tables and he sat next to me. And I remember that night, you know, he'd lose a pot and we'd talk about it. But in practice, generally, I, I try not to help people that are sitting specifically to my right. But in that instance, you know, I could tell that it was beyond just poker for him. He was suffering personally, dealing with the issues of losing at that current session. I will say that I personally have not been happy when I've lost not happy for the other person, but I've been not angry. Like, like I've been, I guess the thing I'll say is that, you know, I was doing some mental game work with Blake Eastman and he really drove home to me that one of the things I needed to learn to do was to empathize with the other players at the table. Mm -hmm. Because if I empathize with them, they have no power over me. If I can understand where they're coming from, why they're doing what they're doing, then they don't have any power over me. And so I try to do that. I try to empathize. So there's a lot less judgment when I'm sitting at the table than there ever used to be. Good. I'm not going to pretend that there isn't any. You know, I'm still a work in progress here. Right. But there's much less judgment. I try to spend more time being curious as opposed to judgmental. So I can't say that I have been the cheerleader of the person who just won my chips. But there are people, let's be honest, there's people it's easier to lose to. <laughs> you know? Right. I will say this. When somebody is suffering... I do something that, as somebody who wants to be, be a professional poker player, a lot of people would tell me I, I shouldn't do. If I see somebody who is behaving addictively at my table, gambling-wise, I'm probably going to get up and go to a different table because I don't want to participate in their downfall. There's a distinct right. difference between sitting there and gambling. You know it's a game of variance. And then there's another difference between that and somebody who is in their sickness in that moment. Yeah. You know, and, and the argument's always, well, somebody's going to get their money. That's okay. I'll go get my money from somebody else, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think Theodore Roosevelt said, uh, comparison is the thief of joy, right? And when we see other players winning Ooh. and we're not winning, all you're doing is just costing yourself uh, an opportunity to be happy. Like, it's not going to change anything, right? But when, uh, when you see other players win. And I mean, I, I, I agree with Dell. Like it's, it's fun to, for me to just watch the action sometimes. And when I know players are just there to have fun and we see a big pot, whether I'm in it or not, like sometimes it's, it's really cool. Sometimes I can just get all in with 150 big blinds and a player spikes a two outer on the river. Like I, I have had hands where I'm just like, that is the coolest thing I've seen in a month. Like I, I wish it was reversed, <laughs> but like, geez, I mean the, the yeah. gumption, to get it in like that. I mean, I respect that for sure. Yeah. Uh, wh what I was going to, to say in, in relation to Dell's comments was uh, that we, we've spoken about that before um, th in coaching sessions is that there is rationality in everything people do at the poker table, whether or not you think that it's insane for a player to, to ship it like four bet all in cold four bet with seven deuce off, whatever. There's rationality yeah. in that person's mind in that moment, whether you agree with yeah. it or not. No one is sitting yeah. down at the poker table just like 
doing things at random, everything they do makes sense to them. And so the empathy yeah. makes it a lot easier to deal with when you understand that people have their own reasons and then those reasons make sense to them. Then at least there's kind of an explanation to what's going on. Well, that's one of our big downfalls as players is we oftentimes think we just assume that they're thinking the way we do. I mean, I've heard everybody does that at some point, right? Well, I would never four bet Jack's there, so he's not four betting Jack's or whatever. You know, it's like it's really hard to break out of what we and others would do in those moments. But I like that. It's a really good thought that even, even if it's a temporary insanity, there's still an explanation for what they're doing in a sense, right? So one thing that does tilt me a little bit that I have no control over is when the hand gets dealt out and then the last hand, the last card gets dealt to the button and it gets flipped over and then it's a misdeal and we got to, we got to go through the whole process of getting the other deck out and reshuffling and redealing. And from what I understand, that comes from the old, old school poker mentality that uh, cards could be marked and, and players used to deal themselves. But now that we've got auto shufflers, and we've got the we've got the cut card covering the bottom of the deck, and we've got all these processes. As as a legend of the game, can you speak to the to why we still have to misdeal the hand if the card dealt to the I, button flips over? I can. <laughs> I can speak to the nature of rules in general and poker rules in sp- particular. They were all made up by somebody, and they're almost always made up to handle some situation right? To, to correct something that might go wrong. Now, the nature of laws, I mean, you can go around the country and look at the laws in, in cities that are just ridiculous, that are 100 years old, that, are, that they were right at the time, but now they're obsolete. So poker rules go obsolete. And, but it takes a long time for the lawmakers to catch up. They have to go back and clean house, right? So I've got some good news for you on this one, is that Oaks, where I play here in Oakland, they don't do that anymore. You know what they do? There's no misdeal. No misdeal. They had a hand just the other day where not only did the somebody end up had three cards, but the dealer got so flustered that one of the cards, another card went on the ground. Now, it used to be if a card went on the ground, they had to freaking call security and bring in everything. You know what the rule is at Oaks if a card goes on the ground? You pick it up and put it back in the deck. They don't change decks. They don't do anything. And if there's a misdeal, if somebody has the wrong number of cards, they do not gather the cards up and redo it. They just, if somebody has three cards and he didn't look at them, the dealer just grabs one. Total random. So I'm just saying there's hope for us all. There's at least one card club that has moved past the, those particular set of archaic rules. So I have trouble empathizing, I guess, with people that want to stay very strict to those rules. And a, a kind of silly example is that I, I might be dealt a card that has just some dirt on it, right? Like I, I could see on the corner, like it's got a little bit of that speck of dirt. I'll just take a chip and I'll scratch it off. But like a hundred percent of the time, someone else gets dealt a card with like a little speck of dirt on the corner. When they fold, they like got to flag the dealer down. They like put the card away. And then, I mean, a lot of times the dealer will just like remove that thing themselves. But I, I have trouble empathizing with those people that are, that, but it's, it, I mean, it's not even like the nitty player though. It's just people that I, I feel like maybe they are proud to identify a moment where they can say, Hey, this is something that's not um, unusual. But I, I don't really know maybe if, if that comes from another. Uh, here's your new outlook for these situations. 
And any anything, anytime somebody's calling the floor man or doing anything that you think is just like unnecessary, <sighs> don't say anything. Don't get involved. Just wait it out. It's like you're just sitting in a stoplight. Let them let the rule nits be rule nits. Let the floor work it out and just try not to feel upset at that person for basically they're not breaking any rules. If anything, they're enforcing them. So, yeah. So there's really, you know, it's all in your head. This is an unhappiness that exists only in your head because you've got this judgment or you've got some idea about you wish people were behaving differently than they do or whatever. But uh, I like what you said about like, if you can just clean the spot off the card, fine. Now what stakes are we talking oh, about like here? Two, I mean, two, five, but even, even five, 10, like. Okay. So like the likelihood of there being any conscious cheating going on is so close to zero. Yeah. That and that, it doesn't, matter. and that doesn't bother me. And I think that's part of it is just like, come on people. Like we, like there's nothing shady happening. Let's just move on. But Again, I, I do recognize that is my expectation of having a smooth game crashing into the reality of the fact that people just like to identify those situations. So, Tommy, you should know that Jordan and I are almost always on opposite sides when it comes to this stuff. <laughs> and I don't. Ag- what's your what's your deal? I think that I think I agree with him on certain things that some rules are ridiculous and they don't. And they're ridiculous, in my opinion, not because. They the ridiculous nature so much as they're ridiculous because they don't have much of an effect. Yeah, I, I get the you can scratch that dirt off yourself. I get that. That's like ridiculousness. But I think that in a lot of ways, Jordan wishes poker was like the wild, wild west. Still, and my problem with that is while Bill gets shot in the back of the head, <laughs> you know, I, I don't want the wild, wild mm-hmm. west. I, you know, and I always tell him, and it, this this will be interesting. I want to see if you agree with me. I feel that part of what I do, you know. And, and I think a lot of people feel the way I do is I go to a casino and I pay that rake willingly for them to put on the game for me. But part of them putting on the game is to make sure that it's a good, clean, honest game within reason. I mean, obviously, they cannot know and watch every little thing that happens. But that's why I pay that rake without complaint. And so here's here's a practical example. What Dell Dell means uh, we we did a couple episodes on ethics and poker and uh a lot of times when something comes up in either like the high stakes streams or something like we might be on opposite sides. And we had a private conversation in the past specifically about a situation with a string bet. And I will play these underground games or I used to play these underground games in New York. And there's a lot of trash talking and a lot of going back and forth. And people are very competitive in that environment. And some of those players that are big players, they're, they might be doctors or lawyers, but they're there to compete. And sometimes what they like to do is like the little pump fake. And to me, that's fine. But one day I was in the casino and there was a, a player who I didn't recognize and I don't know if they had. So I, I don't know if he was new to the game of poker or if he was, you know, just in town, but, but had a lot of experience. And he, he made a string bet and then nothing happened. And someone else um, made a comment and the dealer specifically said, well, I'm not going to call it if the other player in the hand, which was me, uh, thinks that that was a string bet. He can, he can ask and I can clarify. And for me, I'm thinking, well, I would, I would like to reserve the right to call the string bet just in case that mistake creates an opportunity for me to exploit. And Dell's point of view is that, uh, if it's, and I had to cede this point to him, if it's written on the wall, 
that string bets are not allowed in this room, then it becomes the dealer's job to enforce it, regardless of whether or not the other players at the table call it out. And I, I don't know how I feel about that. Well, the, both of them are correct. It's whatever the house decides, right? I mean, it is their house, right? And so I've played in plenty of games where the dealers are expected to call string bets, but the best treatment of this I've ever seen by 100 miles, it sounds like very similar to yours, except it was, it was known, was in the Lucky Chances, the big No Limit game I used to play over there for years. Um, within that player pool, and this was effectively a 20 40, it was like the blinds were 10 10 20, but it was minimum 40 to come in. So it's effectively a 20 40 no limit game, big game, right? Within that player pool of about 100 people, they decided that they would call, the, that the players only would call the string bets. You know, there was so much money and so much at stake that they didn't want the dealer to have that kind of power or obligation, right? Now, here's the beauty of this, this particular handling is, let's say I'm in the pot and, and Joe does a string bet. Well, I, now I have the option. I can let his bet stand or I can call string bet and the second half has to go back behind the line or whatever. To me, this is like the absolute purest Wild West version of how to handle this rule is that play, string bets are, they're not illegal, <laughs> but they are retractable or whatever you they want to add call an it, element you know. to the game that allows for another level of countering. Poker. Yeah, yeah, Pokerness. exactly. Yeah, yeah. But, it, but the key thing is it makes it, dealers are not supposed to be floor men. And this is the one rule where dealers are expected to make floor decisions in the moment. And that's the fundamental flaw with it. All right. I'm going to take and say, let's go you guys' route where you guys want this Old West playing. And that's great. You know, somebody's going to shoot me in the back of the head when I got aces and eights. But, but here's the thing. All right. Is there not another ethical dilemma, right? You get the option, right, to call the string better or not. Well, really, is there not an ethical sense of if I'm going to call the string bet, I'm always going to call the string bet, <laughs> you know? And if I'm not, I mean, otherwise. No, the, the, you got to start with the assumption that, that all the players know what a string bet is and they know they're not supposed to do it, right? You got to start with that. And string bets are one of the classic angle shots of all time, right? I mean, if it was legal to do a string bet, you would constantly have people betting 100, getting a read on the guy, and then betting two more hundred. I mean, you can't do that. It's fundamentally ripe for angle shooting. Now, whether or not the string better is actually shooting an angle is irrelevant. The point is it, the other person has to have the option of undoing the angle shot or letting him do it, right? It's, it's, a, it's a great topic. There's no other rule in poker like string bets. It's really... Well, I think what happens is if you break it down to the logistics of which is just the way I tend to approach all these situations, let's say you had a game where it's not written on the wall, where there said nothing about string betting. You would have to then at some point define when the player's turn was over. Like if I'm playing the hand against Dell and I slide out a stack of 100, like at some point I have to say, okay, my turn is done. But Dell would then know that that like logistic scenario is available so he just would not react until he gets the the button push or the confirmation from me that i'm done betting and then if we live in that world i could slide out one stack at a time like uh rounder style like whatever but but my point is just as 
Right. And I, I think what we come to is that in the player pool makes a big difference. Well, and plus, you know, you can't expect every single rule to be written on the wall. I mean, it doesn't say, you know, don't throw your chips across the room or whatever. You know, it's like. Okay. Well, another rule that I think is interesting is, is allowing the blinds to chop. And I think that's fine. Like it, it speeds up the game. I'm sure that's, that's where that came from. But what I'll see every now and then is the hand get folded to the button and then the button player will either limp or, or make a small raise or they'll just say, well, I have, I guess I have to fold. But, and then every now and then someone in the blinds will say, you know, thanks for, you know, blocking the chop or whatever. In the past, I've mostly assumed that that was kind of just a joking statement. But recently, and this just may be, you know, some variance of uh, sample size that I've, I've seen these instances packed together, but I, I've, I've heard it be a bit more of an aggressive uh, unacceptance. Like the, the player on the button was almost asking, like, can I play this hand? And then I, I saw another hand where the player on the button min raised and the people in the blind were like, oh, thanks a lot, guy. And th- that's, that's what I mean by the peer pressure in the, the pre-cast discussion here was um, that that kind of pressure that the people should be expected to play to these norms, even though it doesn't, it does, it's not even a thing. Now, are you talking about the pressure to fold the button to let them chop? Yeah, it, it seems to be a thing, yeah. Okay. Do you have any projects in the work right now, Tommy? Anything you're working on? Nope. No. That's the short answer. <laughs> I know. First time in, uh, I started writing poker articles in 1999. And as of about a year ago, was the first time since that time I didn't have some major project going. So what happened was I wrote articles and I wrote five books. And during that period, I did a video series, the Eightfold Path video series. I did a series that Phil's, Phil Goffin's site, Run It Once, that's behind his paywall. And then uh, 2019, I did the Poker Simple videos with Lee Jones. Have you guys seen any of those with Lee Jones? Okay, so that that got me deep into video making. And I spent a whole year working my ass off, learning how to do Final Cut Pro and doing all this fancy editing. So then Lee and I stopped doing that because of COVID. And then I did my own videos for about a year called Poker Words. I got about 12 videos. It's just me doing my thing. And then um, about a year ago, uh, Oaks, which is a nearby club that I almost never play in, you know, even though I've lived in Oakland for eight years, they started spreading a 5-10 game. It's basically a 2-5 game with a voluntary winner straddle. But every game is straddled every hand. It's a Mississippi straddle. So every single hand is a whole different situation, which is fantastic. And the stakes are high enough to get me to drive down the hill. And so I've been playing like two or three days a week for the first time locally for the first time in like 12 years. And it so happens that the same creative energy that I play poker with is exactly the same energy that I write and make stuff with. And that's why I had to stop playing and coaching completely when I wrote Elements of Poker. So right now, I feel like I've kind of climbed the book writing mountain. I don't have any need to write any more books. I've climbed the video mountain as far as I need or want to go. Um, And so I have no driving passion to make new stuff currently. Could change tomorrow. But that's where I'm at right now. So I I got a couple of more questions. I, first of all, I'm a little disappointed at that answer, but I understand it's great that you're you're doing what you want to do. Um, I, I'm a little disappointed because I know that at one point in time you said you weren't going to be writing any more um, 
nonfiction. You would be writing fiction. And I was kind of excited and yeah, looking yeah. forward to where that yeah. might lead you. But yeah. you're playing, you're having fun, you're, you're doing all this other stuff. Right. Or you're not actually, you're done doing all that other stuff. That's great. One of the things that I do want to know, I think this is like, um, you know, very important to know is that for me anyways, because because I'm selfish. <laughs> uh, okay. Real soon, my hope is to no longer be building scaffold and new plants. Like I want to quit. Like, so I, like I was like, I had this envious moment the other day where uh, my wife got to partake in. Wait, say that again about scaffolding. scaffolding. I, I built scaffold and new plants, Tommy. This is what my job. Oh, actual scaffolding. I was picturing, I use metaphorical scaffolding all the time. Okay, go ahead. I was building, I built actual scaffolding. Actual scaffolding. Okay. And I I was a little jealous. My wife was able to partake in a edible uh, brownie the other day to alleviate some pain. And I'm I'm jealous. And I'm looking forward to the day that, that the day I know I'm not working in nuclear plants anymore, I will be partaking. And what I want to know is, can Jordan and I come hang out with you and meditate just once? <laughs> oh, hell yes. Come on yeah. up or over. So, and we got all the edibles you can eat out here. <laughs> you know, it, so in, in Michigan, it, it just recently became legal, but I, I spent a right. year uh, fighting wildfires in California and I, I drive into Sacramento every now and then and California is definitely ahead of the game in, in that arena. Yeah. When Oakland was the first place in the country to have dispensaries like 22 years ago, and now they were the second place in the country to uh, decriminalize uh, psilocybin. So, do you do you um, use those substances to to like uh, what's the word I'm looking for recreationally, or maybe even um, to facilitate medicinally? Well, well, to just facilitate uh, like meditation or anything. I I. I use both of those. So the only um, psychoactive molecules that enter me are coffee, pot, and psilocybin. Okay. And I used to use the pot and psilocybin only recreationally for the first 30 years. And, and, but now I'm, I, I do micros. I don't know if you're familiar with that. A little bit. Concept with psilocybin. You, you take such a small amount that you, you either don't feel it or you just barely, barely feel at all. And it's, it's part of a mental health thing. And there, I think it, it, it improves my quality of life. I do that like two or three times a week, very small amount. It could be a placebo effect, which I'm fine with that. Um, but in terms of uh, pot, what I've done is, um, you know, I use vape. I started vaping like six or seven years ago, which has been wonderful for my lungs to not smoke so much, but I've been, I've basically been a stoner my whole life. So it's, it's hard for me to think of it ever as being just medicinal. It's just kind of like what I do. You know, there, there's definitely a lot of evidence right now about it helping with depression and certainly helps with pain. And You're talking about pot or psilocybin? Marijuana. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, right. So, you know, maybe your intent isn't medicinal, but I'm sure there's some medicinal benefits. You oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. I, I used to call it tilt medicine. When I was playing 2040, there were times the whole game would break. Everybody'd be out getting stoned, the whole table, right? But to me, it was like during the 90s when I was grinding, there was absolutely no doubt in my mind that the only way I survived as a player was to dull the pain with pot. It was critical. So the beautiful thing about it, okay, play no limit, I don't. Like when I'm down there playing this 5-10 game, 
I might hit the vape just a teeny, teeny bit, but not enough to even get any kind of stoned at all, right? Because I'm like, I need to be super focused. I'm happier that way. But back in the old days, before I started meditating, the pot had a great effect for me because when you're playing limit hold'em against all bad players pretty much all the time, having a low VPIP was the most important thing. There was absolutely nothing more important than that. And so the pot helped me maintain that low VPIP. That's all I can say. It must have been so mind-numbing to try to do that without it um, because, yeah, yeah, I'm not a I'm not a limit fan as it is, but to be able to maintain that discipline, yeah, it's, it's got to be tough. Yeah, I needed drugs. Yeah. <laughs> so this has been like really, really amazing, Tommy. We've really taken up enough of your time for today, but I want you know this has been great. I I really hope that uh, I hope that we get to talk again in the future, and I'm certainly going to try hey. and stay in contact. I am going to get your book on the meditation, and I am going to do it. Um, Jordan, you have anything to add before we go? No, I, I just look forward to the day that I can uh, carve out a weekend to fly out to to Oakland. And maybe uh, maybe fun. I'll catch you at the table. Well, no, if you guys come out, we'll schedule a session or two at least. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you very much. This has been such a great conversation. You're you're for sure one of um, my heroes as as far as starting to learn the game and and being inspired to to go a, a different route than you know most players as far as the the peer pressure and and all of that goes. Once again. Once again, thank you, Tommy. So hold on, little plug, oh, right? I'm sorry, I forgot all about that. Yes, plug, plug away. Okay, well, it's real easy. I am coaching, Zoom coaching. I've been doing that since 2017. Um, it's 150 bucks per call, and all calls are one-offs. You can go to my site and just click the coaching tab, and it'll tell you more details. And then uh, in terms of what I'm promoting is coaching and books. And you can, if you go to my site, TommyAngelo.com, you can read little blurbs about the books or you can just go straight to Amazon and look me up. Before we go, I'm going to say a couple of things. First of all, I, all the books are, are I highly recommend them. Um, but the other thing I'll say is that that's a real reasonable price to get coaching from Tommy Angelo. That's like unbelievably reasonable. Well, <laughs> well what happened was I, I decided to make a change in 2000, you know, with Black Friday hit 2011. At that time, I was doing it. My coaching was 10000 for a full week package in Vegas. I was coaching almost all exclusively pros. And then I did no coaching at all and just like wrote, wrote, wrote for uh, seven years or whatever. And when I decided to get the coaching going again, what I decided to do was I really wanted to expand my client base to low stake players, to people who were either wanting to become pros or we're grinding at two five and five ten, and that's who who I wanted to make myself available to, and that's how this whole new model came to be, and it's been great. I wouldn't still be doing it if I didn't that, like that's it. That's awesome, Tommy. That really is. Like I, I first of all personally thank you for that because I am that low stakes person, and uh, yeah, that that's great. Thank you very much, Tommy. Thank you for being on the show. This has been awesome. Okay, well, thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed it. This has been Stealing the Blinds, a weekly poker podcast for students of the game by students of the game. When you're not stacking your chips, please feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get yours. Recommend the show to your favorite donkey, fish, or whale, and head over to tbstv.com support to show the crew some love. Until next week, stick to the plan, and may all your variants be positive. <laughs>